Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. I'm so pleased to be in conversation with Susie Wu today about her fantastic book, Framed by War. Um, and I, I'm a professor at UC Irvine, and I've known Susie for many, many years. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much, Judy. Judy is also the Associate Dean of Humanities. She's the director of the Humanities Center. Um, her most recent book is Fierce and Fearless which is about Patsy Mink, who was the first woman of color in Congress. And um, Judy and I have been in a writing group together, and she's helped me think through and develop um, any argument that's good in the book. Judy probably had a hand in helping me think through. So uh, this is all to say that I'm really grateful to you, Judy, for taking the time. I know you're really busy. Um, so thank you for that. Oh, it's a joy to be here. And um, I, I love your work, even though I've read portions in draft form. It's just so beautifully written. It's so polished. It's so thoughtful. So I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, so I want to begin with how you begin the book, which is this really beautiful memory about Elvis passing away and um, your memories of your father. So could you say a little bit more about why you chose that moment and what it says about the Korean American experience? Yeah. Um, so I opened the book with this memory of when I was really young and, um, you know, my father is, so I'm Korean American. I'm second generation. My parents were um, born in Korea. They both lived through the war and they came to the United States in 1969. And, you know, my dad is probably the biggest Elvis fan um, that I know. And I think that growing up, I never really thought too deeply about why this was. I never thought it was really odd. Um, I just didn't draw any connections. And I think this is in large part because I never really knew to ask my parents about their experiences in Korea. And it really wasn't until I went to college and started learning about the Korean War. And I'd come home on the weekends and I would, you know, start to ask them about their experiences. And this is when I learned about what happened to them in the war. So this is when I learned that for my mom, um, she was about seven when the war began and um, she lost her father and two sisters in the war and North Korean soldiers um, killed her father and they took her oldest sister. Another sister died from illness. And so my mom has all of this personal trauma connected to that war that I never knew of growing up. And then I learned from my father that he had a different experience. He was about 14 years old and he spent a lot of time on US military bases. And this is where soldiers would give him chewing gum. And this is where he would find weathered copies of Look and Life magazine. And this is really where his American dream began. It was in the middle of this war that it really began. And so my father's connections to American culture, it really 
began with the war. And these are all things that I never knew. And I never knew to make these connections. Um, I also never knew to ask. And to me, it was uh, really, as I was doing this research, it really showed me just what a huge impact this had on my parents' lives in these really interesting ways. Um, yes, there was trauma, but yes, there was this American dream and all of this is happening amidst the nightmare of war. And I think that that moment was really, um, I don't know, it was, it, was, it was very shocking to me, I think, to think about the depth of what it means that my father loved Elvis. Um, these are all things that I never really thought through or knew to think through. Thank you so much for sharing that. I was thinking as you were speaking of how much people bring with them when they migrate across borders. And I think there's a tendency that's more recently challenged, but there's a tendency to think about life starting over when you cross a national border. But as you were sharing the experience of your father, he grew to love Elvis before he even came to the United States. Um, or the experiences of war that your mother experienced that that remains with her. Um, so I was wondering if you wanted to reflect a little bit more about, I think, this more transnational understanding of migration. Yeah, um, I think that I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's this assumption that as soon as a new immigrant arrives to this country, as soon as they step foot on American soil, um, somehow that past is detached. And of course, anyone who has immigrated knows that that is absolutely not the case. There are all of these ties. They're not always just kinship ties, but there are all of these um, memories and ties to the past and to the home country. Um, and so for my parents, you know, it what was really interesting about talking to them about this is that, again, growing up, they never talked to me about this mostly because the stories that they have are really difficult. And I think that these are probably stories that they may themselves not want to remember. But once we started talking about it, I was struck by how these memories were right there at the surface. And the details that they have um, of, of these moments were right there at the surface. And so if we think about the Korean War on the US side, this idea that the Korean War is one of the forgotten wars, um, one of America's forgotten wars, it this is not a choice for people who are Korean. It um, follows them wherever they go. I'll never forget, um, I spent 4th of July, this was just a few years ago, and um, in my neighborhood, there are really big fireworks. Um, I'm pretty sure they're illegal, but there are these big fireworks. So I invited, you know, my parents were over and we were watching and I was having so much fun. And my mom, her first comment was, it sounds like war. And I just thought that is her context. This is something that is always there for her. And um, so I do think that there are so many things that they will carry with them. And it's always just under the surface in a way that I don't think um, for those of us who have not experienced war firsthand, you know, recognize that these are the things that people carry with them. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to read a statement from your, your introduction, which I think really um, encapsulates what you're arguing in your book. Um, and I just want to hear you re reflect more, a little bit more about that. Um, let's see. Through historical counts, um, though historical counts have left Korean children and women as a largely forgotten population of a forgotten war, they were essential to the work of the US military, government, and private sector in ways that both enabled American power and forced its unraveling. So it's such a beautiful and powerful statement. 
But I was wondering if you can say a little bit more about that sentence and how you think it reflects the work that you're doing in the book. Yeah, um, thank you. That's a big question. Um, I think that one of the things that I realized when I started to conduct research um, for this project you know, one of the places that I started was the U.S. military archives. And so I uh, looked at State Department records. I looked at military records at the National Archives. And what I found, there were two things there that really stuck out to me. One were the daily logs of the chaplains who were um, assigned to each of the Army units. So there are these chaplains who are assigned to each of the units that are stationed in Korea, and they kept these daily logs of activities of that unit. And within those daily logs, almost every day was a scheduled time for the servicemen to spend time with Korean children. So they were either delivering donated goods to an, a local orphanage. There was playtime that was structured into the day. Um, there was also events like Christmas events where the soldiers would go to an orphanage and the children would perform for the servicemen. And so that was interesting to me that this was uh, built into their schedules uh, on a day-to-day -day active on in their daily activities um, on non-combat in non-combat moments. But then I saw that coupled with the correspondence of uh, military commanders who were writing between units. And they say very plainly that putting the men in contact with children boosted soldier morale. And it also um, gave some of the men who may have been questioning why they were there in Korea a purpose in the war. And so it was very clear that this structured kind of um, moments of contact that were being structured really by these military commanders and by these chaplains, there was a function for bringing men together with Korean children. And the other part of that sentence at the end, um, there were also these moments where the men really lost their hearts to these Korean children. And they started to do things like house them in the barracks. The, um, there are many, um, there's a lot of evidence that shows that Korean, especially young boys, were often brought into the barracks, um, given jobs like tidying up the barracks, washing boots, and the men would pull together money to give the child an allowance. And these children were often referred to as houseboys. And um, there were also men, servicemen, who tried to formally adopt Korean children. And they would go to their commanding officers and try to find out how they can go about formally adopting these children. And this is the moment when it definitely these uh, the intentions of military commanders, this was not the intention. The intention was not to create these surrogate fathers or even potentially um, you know, adoptive fathers of these children. And so as soon as this happens, there are efforts to sweep the barracks, to remove the children and to place them into orphanages. There are efforts to uh, make it very difficult for the men to actually go through the formal process of adopting a child. And of course, there were no... Um, there were no legal structures on the U.S. side for transnational and transracial adoptions at this time. So there was that piece. But even still, they made it very difficult. They made the timing very difficult. And they did this purposely. It's written out in these memos and these memorandums to suggest that if we extend the process, um, their tour of duty will be over. And if they want to complete the adoption, they'll have to come back to Korea, which will make it more difficult. They also instructed the chaplains to try and dissuade the men from formally adopting and try to explain to them, you know, you're very young, you're getting swept up in the emotions of, of this moment in your life, and you 
can't foresee the difficulties that will come your way if you go through with this kind of adoption. And so um, there, to me, those two things were really striking to see that entire process um, really laid out in the archive. And to me, it said a lot about what the US military was trying to do. Um, so that was a big part of it. And the last piece of that is that Korean children were so central to the narrative that was being constructed on the US side about what the US was doing in Korea. So, um, you know, if you look at any kind of government document, if you look at the media representations, there's so much of a focus on Korean children, whether it was to rally the American public to um, donate to, you know, money and clothing for the Korean War for the Korean children, or on the heels of the war, there were all these stories about um, Korean adoptions and how white Americans were adopting Korean children. And so in all of these ways, I think it becomes really clear how the child becomes central, not only to the work of the military, but also to the narrative being constructed around why America was in this war in the first place. So in that messaging to the American public, the Korean child becomes so central to that telling. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, there's so many things I want to follow up with. And one thread maybe I'll, I'll just ask now is that this is a very intimate portrayal of war. So if you think about the ways that we might visualize war, or conceptualize war, you might think about it in terms of geopolitical conflicts and you know, mapping um, where troops are moving, where, um, which countries are in lines with each other. But this is a very, um, as I said, intimate connection that you're tracing these surrogate um, familial relationships. I was wondering if you wanted to say a little bit more about how maybe your work is is part of a, a larger shift in the way we think about war and also about empire, which is a, a term that's in your title. Yeah, um, such a great question. I think that when I started this project and I was, you know, conduct, I pretty much tried to find anything that I could about the Korean War. So I was reading a lot of things and there were so many military histories and political histories and very little about the people. So this is back in 2003 when I started research for this book. This is all to say it took me forever um, to write this book. Um, but, you know, I, I just, every time I was reading what was published, I was thinking like, where are the people? You know, what, um, if I think back to my parents' experience, what, where is the perspective? Where is their experience? And so I knew going into this, that that was going to, I was going to try um, my very best to make that my focus. Um, I also recognized that there were so many pieces of the pieces of the story that I didn't fully understand. I didn't quite understand um, how it was that these adoptions were taking place. I didn't quite understand uh, the connection between, you know, um, prostitution and government sanctioned, military sanctioned prostitution, um, mixed race children, Korean adoptees. There were all of these just pieces. I had all these pieces of a puzzle that I was really trying to put together, but I really definitely wanted to focus on the experience of Korean civilians. And um, when I was looking in the archive, you know, it became very clear to me how much children and women were central to that story. It seems like um, family is such an important political trope. It's both describing these kind of day-to-day -day interactions that people have, but it's also the political uses of family that you're really trying to highlight and foreground. 
And so I wanted to ask if you could say a little bit more about that. Is it because it's the Cold War, the emphasis on domesticity, or do you think that this is actually a, a broader trend, right, to think about um, the ways in which family and kinship are connected to war making? Yeah. Um, I definitely think a huge part of it on the U.S. side anyway is about the Cold War. So if we think about the 1950s and the 1960s and the place of the nuclear family um, in American politics at this time, uh, you know, if we have if we think really this is another thing that was so um, striking to me and why I really wanted to research Korean adoptions in particular is because the idea of the white nuclear heteronormative middle-class family, uh, this was a huge disruption to have the figure of a Korean child. And how was it that this kind of interracial family was being celebrated at a moment when the United States, you know, was so far from racial integration? Um, so, you know, I was thinking a lot about how this particular family narrative ended up putting forth, you know, these ideas of internationalism, these ideas of, uh, America as a racial democracy when clearly it was not. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about that historical moment of 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. 1955 is when Emmett Till is murdered. And there's this is these are big public, um, public events that are seen internationally. And so in this way, I think that this particular version of the interracial international family carried a Per, carried a lot of weight um, for the American narrative about how democracy is better than communism and how Americans have this great ability um, to bring in people from who don't look like them and who are from afar and also these victims of war. I mean, there were so many ways that these narratives really supported the larger Cold War cultural product, project of the United States at this time. Um, but one of the things that is so important about that narrative is, of course, it doesn't, it completely covers over the fact that in order to create that international family, the family had to be broken in Korea. And so these um, war created these circumstances, not all of the children were orphans, but some many of them were. And so many of the children who did come, especially in this early period, had either lost both parents in the war, had lost one parent in the war, had been separated from their parents. If you think about the chaos of evacuation, um, there were so many families who were separated in that process of, of being displaced by war. And so some of these children were separated from their parents and their parents were looking for them and couldn't find them. And many of them were sent to the United States before their parents had an opportunity to, to find them. So there are all these ways in which the, the creation of the interracial, international adoptive family on the US side, it required the breaking of the Korean family. Um, and that, that brokenness of the Korean family is not something that you see in, um, on the US side in terms of US media. Um, and that's one of the things that I wanted to highlight in the book is these stories that we don't get to see um, that we're not asked to imagine even um, if we're to look just solely at the U.S. kinds of sources, you don't get to see the Korean side and what happens to families on the Korean side. I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, but before that, I wanted to just pick up on something that you said, which is there's a dating of the model minority 
representation, mostly to the mid 60s, although I think various scholars have been pushing it further back. And what you're just describing about the political uses of the Korean adoptee, um, the interracial family uh, as a result of war, it seems like that is an earlier alternative reading, perhaps, of the modern minority representation. I'm, I'm curious about what you think about that. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, the children that were so in the 1950s, probably about upwards of 70% of the Korean adoptees coming to America were actually of mixed race parentage. They had a US serviceman father and a Korean mother. And um, while that story definitely appeared in the media through different uh, transnational adoption advocates like Harry Holt, for example, who made these adoptions very public um, and also you know, was the one who was conducting uh, many of many of these placements. Um, the stories that you end up seeing in the mainstream media really focus on a quote unquote full blooded Korean child and white adoptive parents. And in those images, a lot you begin to see a pattern and the pattern is often showing photographs of the child on his first day in, in America. And it shows him doing things like all these American things, you know, watching television, talking on the phone, um, riding a carousel, dressed in Western clothing, you know, a button up shirt and khakis. Um, this kind of representation really shows this idea of how these children could be shaped to become all American. They're already well on their way to becoming American. And the I think that the um, suggestion is that they will continue to grow up to be grateful to America. A lot of the stories focused on Korean adoptee boys. And I think that narrative was a cleaner narrative because the gender of the child suggested that this child was going to grow up to be a loyal, um, you know, possible soldier for, for America. A lot of the photographs often showed the Korean boy um, adoptees wearing miniaturized U.S. fatigues, military fatigues. So that narrative was definitely a part of that story as well. And so in these ways in the public, the children were being constructed as these already very quickly assimilating um, um, little Americans in the making. And that definitely contributed to this model minority idea. And then if you look at the case records of social welfare workers at International Social Services, which is one of the um, large organizations that, that worked globally actually with children and women, if you look at their records, a lot of their social workers would would note things about how the ch the children are adapting, you know, very easily. Um, they're learning English very quickly. They like American food, um, but occasionally in those records, you often see things like um, cries very often, um, refuses to eat rice, and while the social workers that I saw in these reports would often interpret that as evidence that the child was adapting really well. There was no engagement with the possibility that the child was deeply traumatized and very sad. And maybe Rice brought back memories of being at home in Korea, which that child was no longer there. So I think that, you know, even in the social welfare worker views as well, there was this idea that Korean children were adapting, um, but there wasn't a recognition about the trauma that they brought with them and the challenges that they faced in a still in the still segregated neighborhoods that many of them ended up living in. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, one of the things that 
seems to um, appear throughout the book is this idea of visibility and invisibility. And um, I'm thinking about the sources that you're using. So you said, talk about the mainstream media representation versus perhaps the, the reality, right? Um, or these social service records and the ways in which the, the social workers are interpreting it versus the way that you are giving us an alternative per perspective about what might be happening in those, in those settings. What was sort of the challenge for you, I guess, to both be able to tell the story of American intention but then also to be able to interpret and gain insight into Korean lived reality. There were so many challenges. Um, so when I first started research for this project, the only documents that I had were these kind of top-down documents. So they were government documents, military documents. Um, and it really wasn't until I was able to look at the case files that were located um, at the social welfare history archives. It wasn't until I was able to look at the individual case study files that I was able to um, find these photographs that were, of course, unpublished photographs. And um, some of these I, I expand upon in the book. So I think one of the most um, moving photographs that I saw that really showed or it, that really made me um, think very deeply about what the children's experiences were was in this one case file where there is an image of a Korean black child. And there are three photographs, um, two photographs of him on the U.S. military base. One, he's posing by a Jeep. Another one, he's posing by two Black American GIs. And then another one that's in a studio setting where he is sitting on the lap of um, who I'm assuming to be his mother, his birth mother. And if you look at the rest of the case study file, you learn that his biological father was um, an African-American GI who had returned to the United States and he was trying to adopt his son. But his new wife um, did not want to adopt the child because she wanted to start her own family with him with their own biological children and so the the adoption um, this goes on for about five years but the adoption does not happen with that particular family and then the case closes so it's unclear whether or not the child uh, maybe through a different agency was placed with a family in the united states or if he remained in korea but one thing about that photograph, the studio photograph of him and his mother, it shows that he's, by this point, he's probably, he looks to be about 12 years old. In the beginning of the case file, he's about five or six. So in this studio, it's so that tells me that this is a photograph that was taken later. Um, and he's he's big and he's sitting on his mother's lap and they're both looking in different directions. Neither are smiling. I don't think smiling was a common thing in photographs until more recently. Um, but still, there was this weight to that photograph. And when I saw that, by that point, I had pieced together a lot of the pieces of the story. And it made me realize that there were so many possibilities that were foreclosed. There were all these things that he was not going to be able to experience. Chances are he wasn't going to be able to stay with his mother. If he stayed in Korea, he was going to face ostracism, which was the case for many mixed race children, especially children who are Korean black. If he was adopted to the United States, he would face that discrimination as well in the United States. And either way, I couldn't help but think that what this photograph meant was that this was one moment where they're together, but then in the future moments, they would likely be apart. 
And it's it's that weight of these private photographs that really um that I did want to talk about because again, these are the kinds of stories or perspectives that we're not often asked to see, or that the American public was really not asked to even consider based on the stories that they were being told about Korean adoptions at this time. Um, the other group of private photographs or the erasure of children's perspectives that I saw was in the wartime orphanages in Korea. So I was able to look at registry files, which is the uh, photographs the headshots of children who were being admitted into the or brought to the orphanage. And when you look at all of these photographs, they're all uniform. Um, I think about the years, you know, many, some of the registries that I looked at dated back to 1955 and 1956. So the war has just ended. And I was thinking about what it meant for the children to be brought to the orphanage, asked to sit asked to sit in this specific position. All of these images are, you know, the perfect headshot of the children. Um, many of them had never seen a camera before. So even that experience is something that I think must have been very, um, you know, unsettling for the children. But if you look at the photographs, it's so clear that many of these children have just finished crying. Their eyes are very swollen. Um, they look deeply sad. And if you think about the context and the reason why they're in the orphanage in the first place, you can understand. Uh, they're very young and probably too young to understand the politics of the war, but they're definitely not too young to experience trauma. And that really comes through in all those photographs that I saw in uh, the orphanage registries in Korea. And I, I wanted to you know, talk about that because we, I think that that is such important work for us to do when we think about this war, when we think about any war, but when we think about these experiences, um, you know, I, yeah, I think that that's such an important exercise for us to do. Thank you. That is so moving. Um, I had two follow-up questions and one of them, I don't know how comfortable you are in going into this, but it, uh, as you're describing the children and the trauma that they're experiencing, I'm, I'm thinking back to your parents' stories about living through the Korean War. But I'm also thinking that you are a mother of of young children, and I'm I'm curious about yeah, kind of how how your own the your life has maybe shaped the way that you approach the study or look at some of the materials. Yeah, um, I will say that this project began before I had children and then it continued uh, after I had three children. And by the time the book was done, I had three children. Um, and that made it that much harder, I think, to do this, to do the research and to do the writing. And I think this goes for so many of us who who work on childhood studies, who think about um, these very difficult pasts and how they're connected to the present. Uh, it weighed very heavily on me. And I, I, it was very emotional, I think, to think about what it means to, to be a mother and to imagine, I think that it really highlighted for me um, what a mother might feel being separated from their child. And this was really in the case of, you know, women who had to give up their mixed race children. So these are women who I thought so much about how what it would mean for a Korean mother to try to raise her mixed race child amidst poverty, amidst discrimination in Korea, and then to finally have to um, relinquish that child to adoption because they weren't able to do it. 
And I was thinking about what does it mean then if your child by that point is someone who, of course, you've done your best to raise and you've been with that child for years at this point, you know, separation would be difficult at any point, but I can't even imagine what it would be like um, to have a child who's seven or eight or nine or 10, which is the, you know, the age of one of my children when the book was finished. So it definitely, um, it was very difficult, I think, to, to do this, but it also um, helped me really think about the perspective of birth mothers in particular. Thank you. I was also thinking that so this is something you mentioned earlier and also you'd write about in your book is that it's difficult to do oral histories on this topic. And it seems like that is a, a go-to methodology for historians who don't actually find materials in the archival record. But I think there's lots of reasons why oral history would be very difficult. Um, and uh, so I was wondering if you wanted to reflect a little bit more about, about that. Yeah. So when I first proposed this project as a dissertation, it began as an oral history project. And my um, I went through human subjects committee and I began the process of trying to find Korean adoptees who came to the United States in the 1950s and 60s. And so the people who I contacted were now, um, you know, most of them were in their 60s by this point and some a, a few of them a little bit older and when i started to receive theirs so i wrote a letter um, and then when i started to receive their responses there were several responses that said you know this sounds like an interesting project but that was a really long time ago and um you know i don't know if i want to talk about that experience but there was one letter in particular that I received that really made me switch the focus um, or switch the methodology uh, of this project. And this was a letter from the spouse of a Korean adoptee. And she wrote me and said, you're probably not going to hear back from my husband because um, he doesn't even talk to me about his experiences. He was about four years old when he was adopted to the United States. It was in the 1950s. He grew up in a small town on the East Coast and his memories are so painful that he won't even talk to me about this. And so I can't imagine him wanting to talk to someone else about this. And I think that that letter really made me realize, um, it made me really nervous about asking people to conjure these memories. It also made me question my subject position as well as someone who did not live through the war, as someone who is not an adoptee. I began to really question whether it was really my, my place to ask these kinds of questions. And then it also made me think about the fact that my parents never talked to me about this, my very own parents. Um, and this is often how trauma works. I think that it is, you know, many of the times, many the stories that my parents would tell me, they would often tell me through tears. And so I think about that experience and how, you know, they had to relive these experiences in their telling of it to me, to their daughter. And I think that I worried very much about, you know, the ethics of this for this particular project. And I also recognized that there were so many pieces of the puzzle that I needed to figure out. Um, so that really made me switch gears. So it it changed a lot from what I proposed for the dissertation to what it ended up being. Um, I, I moved away from oral histories. And this is not to say that I don't believe oral histories are absolutely um, essential. I think of the work of Kim Park Nelson, and I think that it's so 
um, absolutely essential that we hear the perspectives of adoptees um, from adoptees. Uh, but I also felt like for this project and given my place as a researcher, this wasn't it wasn't the moment to use oral histories. So I yeah, so that's what happened. I think you've done a fantastic job with the the rich resources that you unearthed and the ways that you really sensitively think about what these textual sources, the visual sources tell us about the dynamics of, that were occurring. Um, we've talked a lot about, about trauma. We've talked a lot about kind of broken forms of communication. Um, but I'm, I'm curious now that the book is out, if you've had a chance to talk to your parents, um, I don't know if you've talked to your children, um, or just with audience, um, people who are reading the book, um, what their reaction has been, and has the book helped facilitate communication and I don't know if healing is possible, um, but at least some some space for communication. Yeah. Um, when my dad he read, uh, I think maybe the first chapter, and he was like, "It's so sad." And I was like, "Well, yes, um, yes, it is really sad." He's like, "I thought you were going to do this like pop culture thing." I was like, "There's culture in there, but it, this is a sad story." And um, so I will always think that story is very funny. Um, so for my parents, I think that they you know, to be honest, I think that they helped me with some of the translations. So I could read Korean, but not great. And uh, there was so much vocabulary that I didn't understand. And so when they helped me with translations, they were like, why are you writing about, you know, prostitution? And why are you writing about these things that are, you know, my parents, of course, I think like many Korean parents have this sense of pride uh, about about their history and about, you know, what they've overcome as a people. And I definitely understand that. So I think that while I was writing the book, there was some concern on their end about what exactly it was that I was writing about. Um, but I will say that it might, it might not be that they're, they're the way that they talk to me about their experiences have changed, but I think that the way that I hear their stories has definitely changed. Um, and, you know, we, these conversations about their childhood and about what it was like growing up in Korea, not just during the war, but after the war, these are things that come up pretty regularly now, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and every once in a while, I'll just record it. You know, I'll ask my mom, can I record this story? And she will have had two glasses of wine. So she's like, sure, go ahead. <laughs> um, no, but she, but I think that the way that I hear these stories, of course, is so different because um, I know so much more now than I did when I first heard some of these stories when I was in college. And there's definitely been, um, I've received a lot of emails and some of the emails that I received are like, my uncle is on the cover of your book. Um, he was in the Korean children's choir. Um, and, you know, it was so great to, to read about what, what happened and to, to read more about the Korean children's choir, but also about, you know, to see the media reception of them and, um, you know, thank you. So I've received a, a lot of these kinds of, of emails, which has been really great. Um, but, you know, I hope, you know, one of the things that I hope to do with this book is to not only, you know, kind of force a remembering of Korea, but to really help us think about how this, you know, unended war continues to affect so many generations, even those who didn't live through the Korean War, it goes on to affect Koreans who are not just in Korea, but also the millions who are living outside of Korea. Um, and so I hope that this book, you know, resonates um, in that way. It's beautifully done. And from one woo to another, I congratulate you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you, Judy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S-H-C-Y dot org.